Welcome everyone to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interview the artist Andrew DeSaw. Andrew specializes in creating original art that is both meaningful and serves meaningful spaces like homes and chapels. I recently caught up with Andrew at the Kane Academy headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia, where we discussed his works, his vision for culture, and two of his most recent commissions. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, good morning, Andrew DeSaw. How are you doing today? Good morning, Andrew. Doing great. Excited to be here talking with you. Yeah, well, I'm excited too. I, I do a lot of interviews, but this is my first podcast with a true blue artist. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. honored. <laughs> so I'm, I'm honored. This is, this is great. And I think our, our listeners are really going to enjoy this. We talk a lot about uh, arrangement. So mm-hmm. we have a, a, a column in our magazine toolkit about arrangements, how poetry and visual art are, how the artists there arrange the material uh, and draw us into the experience, you know, mm-hmm. through that arrangement. And we talk a lot about teaching fiction from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're very keen on hearing from you today about your work mm-hmm. uh, and how you think about art and how you create it. And uh, we're just really excited about that. So let me let me start with this. You have a wonderful website, very beautiful, and uh, there's a tagline there. I think it's proper to call it a tagline, maybe mm-hmm. almost a mission statement, creating meaningful art for meaningful spaces. Can you explain that for our listeners? Sure. I, I'm, I'm very excited to speak about that specifically. Um, I, I would akin it to a mission statement. Um, and again, I think my you can say my mission statements develop over time, but this is a very recent, um, I guess, mission, I'd say. Um, just... So again, talking about spaces, and I kind of categorize. I mean, there's a bit of a, there's been a bit of a development in my own personal work, and this is this statement kind of uh, really explains the latest development. And we mentioned this. I talked about this earlier. Just the idea um, about the mental shift for me personally from painting for a picture frame versus painting for a space. Yeah. And my main uh, medium is oil painting almost work exclusively in oil painting. Um, and my education was extremely classical. I had the privilege to apprentice with a painter out of high school. Um, that apprenticeship has its roots, meaning my teacher, apprentice on our painter, apprentice on our painter, went back to the 1700s, um, back to Jacques-Louis David, um, court painter Napoleon. So very classical education. And uh, in that tradition, uh, there is a strong emphasis on the ideal of beauty. And that was something I internalized and really was the reason I went and studied with this painter named Paul Ingbertson up in New England. And I really took that ideal of beauty to heart and thought about it a lot and, and what that means and this uh, even objective understanding of beauty and the, the subjective relationship you have with it, all these different components, and really came to a really uh, a strong, almost creative, and people say the beauty for beauty's sake, it was kind of my version of uh, coping with a lot of the cultural uh influence of the art for art's sake statement. So I, I was thinking beauty for beauty's sake, you know, this object, this ideal, this transcendental outside of myself, and then I'm trying to chase this in my own work. And really uh, was rather extreme about that uh, and pursued beauty and saw any kind of uh, utilitarian aspect of art. So if you're trying to use a piece of artwork, whether that be decoration or narrative, 
and even within this uh, definition, sacred art, all became kind of a means of using beauty. And, and, and previously, you know, especially when I was studying and, and in my early uh, years of painting, kind of said, no, it's just it's got to be purely visually beautiful because my medium is visual and I'm aiming at visual beauty. If you're a musician, then it's a musical beauty. And I mean, it really only took me so far, and I started asking a lot of questions. One being, you know, growing up, my faith. Um, is really important to me. Relationships are important to me. Um, and how does that component fit in? How does sacred art fit in? I, I got asked to do some commissions um, regarding sacred art. And I started to realize that my kind of, I was limiting this ideal of beauty. And I also just really didn't know what beauty meant. I still don't know what beauty meant. And by using the word beauty so strictly, I was kind of a cop out. Um, and so I started really thinking about um, beauty for beauty's sake, what does that mean, and, and, and how that kind of was segmenting beauty from just the other things I was doing in the day. Like, my activity in the studio was really focused on beauty, and the rest of my day was focused on the practical things, and it was very much a segmentation of those two things. Um, and around that time, I had the pleasure to do a commission that was residentially uh, placed. So it, was, it was actually a home in a space, and it had me thinking about the elements of the space. And when I, when I first got involved in this commission, I wasn't very excited about doing it because it kind of Again, it was it was decorative. It was utilitarian. It, it was really just uh, wasn't appealing to me because it wasn't pure art. Um, what I found throughout that process of of serving a, a a patron of being a craftsman and not just an artiste, uh, it was really a different mindset, and it really made me understand that beauty largely exists in relationships, and 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 the more I was able to kind of present my work within the context of a lived space. And in that way, kind of demystifying it, you know, I was acting more like a, almost like a carpenter than what some people would perceive as an artist. You know, I'm taking account the color of their couch in my painting, things like that. It really made me bring this ideal of beauty into a lived space in conversation with real people. You know, I was no longer just painting for like 10 people in Soho and now more just for uh, the average person can understand uh, beauty, but in the context of a space. So that's I, I kind of a bit of a summary of how I, I, I've been really fascinated by the idea of space and the idea of my paintings being in a space. And how when I work on a piece, uh, one of the first things I like to do is, is uh, visit the site, talk with the patron. It really has changed my mindset from painting for a picture frame. It's kind of an isolated instance versus actually painting for a home or family or space, um, which has been a real passion of mine moving forward here. Yeah, so you, <clears throat> I think most of us who love art have the experience of going to art galleries and and seeing uh, paintings on the wall or sculptures arranged in a room, and and we we take in each of the works of art more or less on their own. But even then, in in the context of a gallery, uh, it, it's a broad artistic experience. So when you visit a gallery. Uh, it's too much to take in the whole thing. Typically, something like right. a large gallery, like the National Gallery of Art, and then there there's the experience of taking in uh, art in in the context of a place for which it was commissioned or mm-hmm. where a piece of art is a place. So I recently went to, to Florence, mm. and uh, a few years ago I was in Rome, and uh, so Michelangelo, of course, has Pieta in mm-hmm. St. Peter's, and then there's. Um, he calls it, I think, the Sorrows or the Pieta that's in uh, one of the galleries in Florence. Right. And uh, 
it's much cruder. It's it's actually even different subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, but uh, but the one is you know definitely situated in, internal to a church as our painting class windows. Mm-hmm. You know which were had the the purpose anyway to educate people to the gospel, especially for people who are not literate. And, right. And uh, but it, for all of us, right? It it uh, lifts us. It elevates us. It places us. It situates right. Exactly. Us, yeah. So. So your art, but so increasingly your art is is um, is not decorative. It's more um, situated in a place that transforms the room, finds its place in the room, kind of finds its uh, a broader a broader meaning by being in a school or being in a right. church or being in a home. Is that a fair way to describe it? I think so. I, and, and and it really came from the realization. Um, I mean, historically, the phenomenon of art galleries. Um, even just picture uh, paintings in picture frames is is a relatively new thing. Um, you really see it develop in the Renaissance, kind of the humanist movement, and this uh, somewhat segmentation of art. And there's been so much good that's developed from that understanding of, of developing the craft and the importance of art as such, and the patronage model it developed then, and, and really this huge expression that you know you get the whole impressionist movement. I mean, this huge wealth that's come from that but there's also a, a secondary effect that I've been very aware of is just this kind of uh, dissection or just separation of art from most people right so whereas and you mentioned Florence I think it's a great example um, you walk into a space and I should mention not just from this uh, separation of art from most people but also separation of of, of the fine arts from each other, the fine arts being uh, poetry, painting, dancing. There's a wide range. Um, and so you walk in a church in Florence, and you see architecture, you hear music, and the elements of liturgy, you would see dance, you'd obviously see painting um, all in one space and all in conversation with another. Um, nowadays, there's a, a largely a segmentation of that, even in the way we experience uh these kind of things so we go and we listen to music we listen on earbuds and and we're not talking anyone it's not enjoyed in a communal aspect painting you know you have specific galleries or like this is this part of my weekend is separated for doing artsy things Um, it isn't something that I'm seeing every day or kind of uh, or in conversation with myself and I think that's a really big distinction and I think it also plays into just the idea I mean you were mentioning how you've been to a, a county fair recently and I think that's a great example of communal culture. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard some uh, brilliant people talk about the confusion between culture and entertainment. Mm-hmm. And we largely, we think of culture and entertainment as the same thing. So I'm doing something cultured. You know, we, we mix up our culture with Hollywood and these things like that, which obviously a large part of our culture. But a lot of that's just entertainment because it's it's in some ways a one-way street. You're kind of just, a con- you're just consuming the entertainment. Mm-hmm. But culture... And, and as I'm sure a lot of your audience knows, it's very participatory. And so the idea of a county fair, which is something you actually go and participate in, it's communal. It's not just, uh, you know, something you experience by yourself on your laptop screen, something you're actually doing together. I think for a lot of people, uh, going to church is one of the rare communal things we'll do mm. outside of the workplace. And, and I'm really fascinated by the way art can play into this kind of communal culture. So I've loved... Um, being able to have the chance recently to put my artwork in, in uh, churches and, and, and a school and different spaces where it's part of this kind of larger cultural, uh, cultural context and not just in an art gallery. Yeah. 
the, one of the more famous cases of where something didn't work out that was commissioned for a space where the, um, the works that Rothko was commissioned to do for the Seagram's Four Seasons restaurant. And then, you know, he's like, that, that, that's not going to work. Right. So he, he, he withdrew that commission. I, he withdrew right. the, the commitment there. Now they're in the Tate Gallery, mm-hmm. which uh, I understand. Uh, he, well, actually, I don't know if he ever saw them in the Tate Gallery, but I know that he didn't like them in the, in the Four Seasons right. restaurant. So that's kind of interesting. Sometimes that, that doesn't work out. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, I, I know she doesn't talk about visual art, but she, when she writes and talks about stories, she mm-hmm. says that the meaning lies in all the details the story writer packs into her work. Meaning, in other words, doesn't lie outside the story. Mm-hmm. So does that resonate for you when you think about art, that, that the that the meaning lies within the art as opposed to something that transcends it? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. I, I view art, um, and I'm not sure exactly how compatible with Flannery's thought on this. I'm sure you could fill me in. Um, but I largely view art as kind of a, uh, almost like a, a vehicle of something. So I used to be of the... I guess you call it a school of thought where I thought that, you know, you create a piece of artwork and it has this kind of immense intrinsical value and then you can imagine a painting, you know, someone walking by in a painting, grabbing someone and, and throwing them towards ideals and, and really affecting them that way. But I think I would agree that the meaning lies within the painting, but the meaning is is dormant until a viewer approaches it. Meaning that an animal or an object can't experience a piece of artwork. The only thing that can ap- appreciate a piece of artwork really is a, a human being. Mm. And the only piece that, person that can create a piece of artwork is a human being. And that's a really important distinction. So that the artist creates a piece of artwork, I kind of view it, I call it my puppet maker theory. Sure. So that the, the artist creates a piece of artwork and, and the puppet, the artwork is valuable in so much it's kind of like a puppet sitting there. But then the viewer comes by and the viewer because of the shared personhood of the artist and the viewer, um, in the same way that I, I can appreciate a piece, you appreciate a piece by Michelangelo, which was done hundreds of years ago, so there must be some huge shared experience that you must have had. Mm-hmm. And so through that shared experience, myself as a viewer, I'm almost like slipping my hand into the puppet and then affecting myself. Mm-hmm. So that the artwork is affecting me, but it's actually a combination of, of the artwork, but as used by my personhood. I think that's a really interesting distinction. So the meaning lies within the artwork, and the animating force is our personhood um, and that shared relationship between artist and viewer. And I think Flannery has really interesting writings on, on morality, too, and the way that plays in. Because I think morality and art has been a big discussion for a long time. And, and whether the artist is a moral instructor, whether he exists outside the world of morals. Um, and I think in literature, you'll understand, and people want to... Uh, I mean, when they talk about morals, I think largely morals is what makes a good book interesting, right? If we didn't have a shared understanding of what's good and right, these tense plot moments wouldn't have any effect on us. And so I don't see a lot of my art necessarily as being morally educative because I don't see myself as a moral educator. I see myself as an artist, so I'm presenting the moral world as I see it in reality. And what you play with these symbols and the way that you do, that's up to you in a way. So I don't see myself as pushing an agenda on people. But I do see myself as having a responsibility. I think this is where Flannery O'Connor would agree. The artist has a responsibility to understand that there is uh, a moral rhyme scheme, if you will, and that artists have to be aware of that and present it in their work in the way that it exists and not manipulate that. Yeah, so the I think 
where yeah so I you know I think the starting point is is that phrase you used earlier about experience so you have an experience as the artist and you're looking at something in the world or uh, maybe a biblical story or you're looking at a landscape or you're looking at a human subject and you capture that in the compact form of a painting and then engage the viewer and I'm, I'm, I, I enter into that experience. My own right. experience is illuminated by, by what you're doing. I think Flannery O'Connor is interesting. She, she really avoids, the, uh, when she's talking about fiction, she really avoids the language of, of morality as mm-hmm. such. But, but she does say that what she's writing about is the, the most fundamental aspect of, of the human condition. That's right. poverty. Right. So it, we're, we're all basically poor. Right. And, uh, so you know what she means by that is a point of debate, but at the very least, you know we're all um, we're all limited. We're right. all contingent critters. We're all limited. We all need each other. So it redounds back to what you were talking about uh, in terms of culture. That it's it's we need each other. Culture right. needs to be communal. It's not isolated. So the the earbud phenomenon just right. doesn't cut cut the mustard for our humanity. It needs, it need, we need space. Right, and there's we a dialogue between a dialogue, the art yeah. and the artist and the viewer. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think some people approach artwork, I think uh, you see this, uh, there's kind of a Western focus on this too, just that uh, almost like a laziness of, I want my artist to also be my, you know, educator and my moral so I want to go to a painting and learn everything I can. Like, yeah. I want to go to Shakespeare and walk out and my life's going to be perfect because yeah. I've learned everything. Like, I always tell people, if you look for morals in art, you're going to, like, and if that, is that your sole focus and, and uh, education on morals, you're probably going to end up in a pretty bad place because, yeah. like, a lot of artists, like, do you want to be learning morals from us? I probably wouldn't think so. Oh, but yeah. if you want to experience reality of morals, so I might go to a, a play that presents uh, this broad sphere of morals, but it's, uh, I think one of the values of art is it's kind of contained space. So there's a moral world and it's contained and it's contained that I can take a look at and almost play with passions, like extreme passions that I wouldn't want to play with in my normal life, but I can see how they play out and in dialogue with these extreme situations. So not that I'm using it as a manual for my life, but that I can kind of, I mean, the beauty of Shakespeare is he, he presents all these passions and these things in a contained space and, you know, you look at the theater and you can see the world and you, you understand all these pieces but I, I always warn people don't take it as a manual, and I think yeah. O'Connor would be, and Flattery too would just be uh, should agree with that. That's right. I um I recently watched um, a movie, a film about an artist, about Vincent Van Gogh, and it's called At Eternity's Gate. Uh, the actor was William Defoe, played uh, Van Gogh. And I, I thought it was a pretty good film. At one point in the film, Van Gogh is is being questioned by a priest who holds the key to whether or not Van Gogh can leave this um, asylum for mm-hmm. people with, with troubles. And he, did, he, was, he was tormented by, by you know, spiritual and psychological troubles. Right. Um, and he, uh, so the priest at one point asked him, he said, why, why do you paint? And Van Gogh, or you know, William Defoe's Van Gogh says that he paints, he has one answer, he says he paints that he, because that is who he is. Hmm. He also says he couldn't be without painting. Another of his answers, he says, he paints so that others can see what he sees. Hmm. Is there anything in that, that that set of answers that resonates with you? Yeah, I've, I haven't seen the movie. I've seen the trailer. It looks yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the cinematography looked beautiful. Um, one interesting, a few years back, I watched a different movie on Van Gogh, 
uh, I want to say it's called Letters to Theo. I know it, it started Benedict Cumberpatch, and he's reading these letters. So, so Vincent Van Gogh is very close to his brother Theo, and right. throughout his life, you know, had this strong, beautiful correspondence. That was a, a very rare relationship. And through those letters, I mean, I I really learned a lot, and, and since then, I've I've read some more and have come away with a, a huge respect for Van Gogh. And I think these quotes really uh, communicate that that he didn't. He wasn't someone who had huge opportunity, or you could say even some people use the word talent, like off the bat, but he had like a vision of something he was trying to get after. And I think the important aspect of that, I gave a talk recently um, to uh, a board at a university on education, and I was talking about art education, I kind of broke down the two largest components of what I see of, of art education, one being vision and one being craft. And vision being, uh, I guess, starting with craft. Craft would be kind of the grammar, mm-hmm. so the you know the basic build up, and then the the vision being the poetry. Mm-hmm. I think someone like Van Gogh was born with this incredible, or developed this incredible vision. And what these letters really taught me, which was fascinating, is that he he really worked on his craft, which I think is a really important distinguishing factor. Because I think you see a lot of people have this vision, but they don't they don't really work on the craft of mm-hmm. painting or writing or whatever they're doing. They don't try to look back at people have done it previously and try to learn the way in which it was done. They just try to focus on this vision. But he had this vision, and he was incredibly intentional about the way he painted. Um, it would surprise people in his letters. He would segment different aspects, very technical aspects of his painting, color, value, shape, size, movement, and just work on them. And he would paint like a madman, focusing on these things. So he had this uh, vision that we don't articulate, and he understood he was learning how to articulate, such that you saw... Uh, and something I didn't realize is a lot of his early sketches, and you see this development of his work that's coming and it's becoming more and more articulate. So in, that, in his last years, you see these paintings, and they're so authentic and raw because he had this very clear idea of what he needed to communicate, and then he worked throughout his life on how to communicate that. Um, and I think that's what he's talking about when he says so that others can see what he sees. Because throughout his life, he had this vision, and he was trying to communicate it, and it comes across in his letters and his paintings. And that his he saw kind of his life mission as, as trying to get, you know, I see the artist in a lot of ways um, less as like a, per, you know, I see an artist kind of as a window. And that a lot of the artist's education is almost just like cleaning the window of the self to, to show people. Um, and I think that you could see Van Gogh like that. Like there's, there's, you could picture, you know, this man in front of this wall that's all dirty and throughout his life through the articulation of his craft, he's cleaning this this wall constantly, rubbing against it, and and you start to see this blurry vision start to come more and more authentic, and, and that idea that he, you know, he was who he was because of painting, and that at the end of the day, through vulnerability and craft, you really get to see the idea of Vincent Van Gogh come out in his paintings. And I think a distinguishing thing, though, is that he wasn't, and I think a lot of artists mix up this idea of self-expression and actually expressing something. And so I think Van Gogh and a lot of these artists, they had something they wanted to show and, and, and what that was was themselves, but that that comes out because of this, uh, this need to communicate something other than the self. It's kind of a paradox. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have something uh, like Van Gogh looking at this field and looking at the way he sees it, and he was so got to really know his voice really well through this craft. You, you, you really hear an authentic voice, and then in his paintings, you just it's like you're staring at Vincent Van Gogh and, and kind of his crazed eyes. Um, but I think I, I, I resonate very strongly with his 
thoughts on those two things for sure. Wonderful. I think our listeners uh, would like to know that uh, they can see two of your commissioned works on your website. And, uh, you know, let's talk about the one. It's called The Flight to Egypt. And this was for a, a chapel, I believe, right? At, at, yes. Um, at uh, Holy Family School in Manchester, New Hampshire. So the drama, the, f- the flight is situated at night. And then, you know, it's, this is hard to talk about without everyone in the audience see- seeing what, I've, what I uh, looked at on the website. But the, the painting is quite large. Mm-hmm. You know, it occupies a, a large segment of a pretty large wall. 24 feet long. It's yeah. 24 feet yeah. long. Oh, good. How, ta- how high is it? How it's tall? about, uh, I want to say, three-ish feet tall. So yeah. it's a very long painting. Yes, yes. Uh, four feet, actually. In, in fact, that's a couple of things that I that just sort of struck my eye. First of all, it, it's it's uh, relatively dark in color. Mm-hmm. So the, the dramatic scene that you captured in the flight is nighttime. And then, or the setting is nighttime, and then it's very long and narrow, which, right. to my experience, conveys a long flight, right. a long journey. Uh, you know, uh, but it's also, you know, a long stretch of reality that's redeemed by, by, you know, the receptivity of Joseph. You know, mm-hmm. hearing the the prompting, getting his family up and out, and. Uh, I don't want to read more into it no. than what's there, but you know, that, a couple of those are a couple of my responses right, right. off the bat. So, so tell me about the the breadth of the painting, the the concept sure. that you had, and it's very interesting because the color of the wall, right, is pretty much the uh, to ma- matches the, um, the 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 hues of, of the painting itself, right. right? And that was deliberate on your part. It or? was, yeah. yeah. There was a lot of that was done after the effects. One thing I, I in that space and. and some space I've worked in, I've had the privilege of actually kind of curating the space along with the painting. Um, so it's not a mural, right? I would call it a mural. I guess yeah. I, I, I... Yet it's framed. Yeah, it's, it has... A, it's actually framed by an existing wood framing. So this building is an old building. has these beautiful kind of classical elements throughout it. And that space was actually where a blackboard used to be. And so they wanted to get rid of that, but I actually wanted to use that space. And it's interesting the way that commission developed. So um, around Christmas time... I get a call from um, my soon-to-be mother-in-law, and she was talking about this school, and she's asking, do you know anyone that would be interested in this project? I know you're not in the area right now. Um, you know, it's class school. They want to do this chapel. They have this kind of space. And she started describing to me, and I started getting way more and more interested the more she described it because the night before, um, and I should mention when she was calling on that, it happened to be the feast day of the Holy Family. Um, but the night before, it had done this little sketch. Actually, I think I have it here in my sketchbook. This won't benefit our listeners, but I can show you. Um, and totally unprompted, had done this sketch, uh, and it's a depiction of the Holy Family on the flight to Egypt. Oh yeah. And so it was just something that kind of came to my mind, and, and really was it, the seed of it was I was thinking about that. Uh, seen in the Gospels, and, and it was Christmas time around vacation and walking on the beach. And I sort of think, well, that if you map out the route from Bethlehem to Egypt, it's a largely coastal route. Yeah. But you don't really see many coastal depictions of that scene. I don't know if I have seen one. Yeah. Usually in the mountains, you know, there's a typical kind of uh, setting. Um, and so I said, why, why doesn't that exist? And then I could just kind of picture this quiet scene with the Holy Family walking, you know, in the sand by the, with yeah. the waves crashing and, and kind of this reflection for me, which has been a really uh, a personal uh, kind of something I always come back to is that you know, they, they were leaving absolute chaos, murder and 
horrible things happening back in their home, and they were traveling to a completely foreign land, which presumably also could be chaos. But that in that moment, I, I, I picture them as having perfect tranquility. And you can almost imagine like fires in the background, but they're just walking, and it's because they had the Christ child there. So that idea that among, you know, in the middle of complete chaos and suffering with the Christ child and with total trust, which is what Jesus uh, and Mary had, there's this, this serenity. Anyway, so I kind of, I did this quick little thumbnail, tiny, I think actually the original is even smaller, but two inches, like little sketch. And I work very, in the beginning elements of my paintings, I work incredibly abstractly because I'm a strong believer in, in the importance of design and composition. You talk about arrangement, you know, the idea of placing things I mean, you could see our whole life is, is just the idea of placing different things. Um, and, and that the most abstract level of the paintings, if someone really almost blurred their eyes or looked at it on a completely abstract level, should communicate also in the same way that the subjects will communicate. And so in that way, I'm a, I'm a student of a lot, you know, modern art would be, abstract art would be along this line, set this circles and lines and shapes can communicate something. And then I like to tie in the, the classical element of education also bring more in that way. So I'd done this abstract sketch as so the long, the length of it, uh, we are describing, you know, this extreme length with the horizon cutting it and then right down the center, um, right in the center on one side is the moon and the other side is the holy family. Yeah. Anyway, so I'd done this sketch and then they start describing the space and they describe the length of the wall yeah. and it all kind of just really, as a, you know, school split. of the holy family and yeah, I said, yeah. well, I have to do this commission. Yeah, yeah. I will be there. Um, and then a few months later, I Actually, it was exciting. I got to work on site on this painting, and it was just an amazing kind of immersive project to, to, to watch kind of this tiny sketch turn into a 24 foot yeah. painting that's going to be part of this space for a long time to come yeah. and be a part of this community. I mean, it really was a, a culmination of a lot of my interest at the time. So, so some of the things that, um, that struck me about how you conveyed the tranquility, how you captured it, so the there, the moon is shining and it shines off the water and the, and the light of the moon and the light that uh, is reflected on the water is the same kind of light that's surrounding that's rimming the heads mm-hmm. in halo form right. around the, the three members of the family and then you've got the family's not dead center they're mm-hmm. kind of uh, they're stage left right. as the viewer is looking right right and um, and then uh, and then Mary, uh, so one way the tranquility, to my feeling anyway, one my experience, one one way the there's tranquility is that she's not, um, you know, um, holding the baby close as if protected, but she's holding the baby out mm-hmm. to gaze on the baby in the moonlight, right. and uh, which is a very tender uh, depiction and uh, doesn't. Um, doesn't reflect the danger that they're in, but right. uh, sort of there's great peace, there's mm-hmm. great uh, tranquility. So, am yeah. I onto it or? Uh, yeah, no, I I love that you're picking up on these things. I'm really trying to leave off some of the idea of of metaphor, kind of in. Uh, I mean, some people I think paint kind of really think a lot about analogy. So this represents this, this represents this, this represents this. I'm much more interested in just kind of tapping into in a small way kind of mysteries that already exist mm-hmm. so I'm always excited when people read things into my painting because I, I hope that I'm tapping something larger so that like they are reading into my painting it's not, I, didn't, I can't say they thought about this thought about this so I think it's beautiful but the halos are something that was really interesting to me because I uh, one way um, in all cultures but there's uh, in, in the history of art the depiction of light um, is strongly associated with the, the spiritual and you know, you can think of it as like, well, that's just kind of the best means that we can 
get to something spiritual, like kind of a shorthand. But I think I, I believe that uh, like there is something there that light and spirituality. There's a, there's a beautiful uh, if if it's almost more than a symbol. Um, it kind of the 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 way you um, worked the moonlight, the reflection on the water, and the halos in a little way reminded me of the way Chagall worked the light mm-hmm. in the white crucifixion. Right. So you get this heavenly shaft of light. It's really the color of linen. Right. And then the the same color uh, is around the head of Jesus yes. and around the uh, menorah at his feet. Right. Uh, that they're all the same light. Yeah, yeah. That the light of the sun that wakes us up every morning mm-hmm. is the same light of Christ. I, I, I don't see why they should be different. I think yeah. that... It's a beautiful reflection, and again, it brings this. This it brings the spiritual into ordinary, which is it doesn't bring it that already exists, but opens up to that. I mean, I think every morning that the sun rises and you get light is an absolute miracle, um, and that you know the, the miracle of, of Christ incarnating and and using that same light to depict him just only makes sense. So I, I was thinking about having those lights be similar, um, and having that kind of just speak that the it wasn't that the spiritualities of these scenes were kind of um, and and were kind of implemented into history that you just like kind of stuck them in, in, in history. Um, but that these scenes, this, you know, flight to Egypt, all these things are a culmination of history. So mm-hmm. the light reflects this, like it exists mm-hmm. for the scene. So the, the, the halo is one way that I, I thought of that. And, and, and the idea of light actually emanating from these figures, mm-hmm. um, was really powerful. And you mentioned like the stances and the, the holding, I, I work for models. And so I was really intentional about that. And, I really did see, for this scene, and when I read it in the Gospels, I had the initial kind of uh, inspiration for the piece. I really do think St. Joseph is a main figure, um, and I really want to represent him very uh, kind of striding, very, he's leading them, and, and he comes from a royal line, so I want a kind of a royal stance. I think we have we have too many tired old St. Josephs. I think historical uh, knowledge actually points out he's probably a very young man, and he was coming from a noble line, and he was a, a carpenter was actually a, a noble profession in that way. Um, and so I wanted him, he's really leading the Holy Family. The angel comes to him and speaks to him, and, and he's guiding them. And I really wanted him to be central to that image, and that, again, Mary, she's looking at him. Again, maybe because I'm an artist, but I always think of things visually, and I think that looking at Christ is a really important image. Um, and so I'm so glad he picked up on that. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's a wonderful piece. And so on the on the website, the uh, there's an indication. Uh, actually, you have a picture of um, the painting when it's first done, and, and it had the the previous wall color on it, and then it had a, has a picture of the transformed wall, and the floor is being sanded. Right. And I think the altar's in place, but I wanted to know: did did you have any kind of say about the 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 wood and the stain and how the floor is going to be redone and all. Yes, I was uh, very intentional about that. I hope to get better pictures up soon because the chapel's actually still under renovation. The, yeah. the sanding's being done as we speak, yeah. and, um, and again, getting to that idea of, of just not just painting a painting. It's like it's beautiful, and then walking away is that this painting exists in a space, and then thinking about that space and that the space being a chapel, the primary uh, use of the space, if you will. Uh, will be for prayer. Mm-hmm. So I try to think of everything, including the painting, as being conducive to prayer. So, and that came down to the, just the composition of the piece, too. So if you notice, the Holy Family's on one side, the Moon's on the other, and the horizon's cutting across. And the way I have it is actually, it all frames the tabernacle. And so 
you know, if someone's praying in there and they're praying towards the presence that's occupied there, mm-hmm. then I actually, even the painting, I don't, the, the, if you notice, it's very slight, but the horizon actually dips a little bit, which is obviously impossible. But that was to help people's eyes kind of concentrate toward the tabernacle. And the Holy Family and the moon kind of center around the tabernacle. So, again, not think of my piece as a piece of artwork and just the composition within the piece, no, but like I'm thinking of it very much framing this whole room. And with that, yeah, like we're very intentional about uh, we put in uh, new wall color. Um, I found we got new lighting. The floors are being sanded and a, a specific stain that works with the painting. And it's 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 not that we did the painting, then we did the space. Kind of both are informed by one another. Are, are you going to wax or polyurethane the floor? Or yeah, we, I think they're, they're polyurethane it to a stain that's going to match the framing. Um, hopefully new student. And then the altar, I'm working with someone right now about having some uh, beautiful altar linens that uh, kind of would work with the painting. So mm-hmm. some silvery night hues. Oh, nice. So yeah. it's really going to be a very special space. Which will be imitative or, or unitive with the the color of the moon. Exactly. Yeah. So really looking at those aspects. And again, all this criteria, I'm not looking at the most beautiful space or the, you know, the, that's going to be you know the most grand. I'm just trying to think, if I was sitting in this pew and I'm praying, what's going to be most helpful to me praying? Yeah. And And I really went for this kind of, especially in a school, having a, a tranquil, beautiful, silent space mm-hmm. with respectful artwork that has images, you know, that would help me pray. So I'm looking at the Holy Family. I can, you know, look at the way that Jesus is holding, uh, uh, Mary's holding Jesus yeah. and the donkey, and I can reflect yeah. in that kind of, and, and uh, I think it's important to have the art be immersive in a way. Well, so there's well, a lot left to be said there. And, and will the floor... Um match the the color of the floor match the color of the frame yes and then we'll put down um you know a a beautiful rug underneath things like that we're we're still in the process of doing but yeah wanted it to kind of be immersive and and really again there's an interesting distinction i think probably literature a lot of things have parallels with art there's a balance between kind of the symbolic and the naturalistic depiction of things you don't want your your uh, you know you don't want your Saint Joe's to look like Tom down the street. You don't want it to look so realistic that you're kind of associating it with things. You want to leave a symbolic element that, in my opinion, is kind of a, a vagueness about the figures that you can really present what you you know your understanding and your relationship with these people is into the painting. So it's also very humbling for the artist. So, so um, I, I don't know if this is entirely historically right but I think Caravaggio would pick people right off the street right so, absolutely uh, he did want his, right. his his biblical figures to look just like right the Joes and Janes and Giovannis and absolutely and yeah. on the street yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, it's interesting because because yeah. I think it's it's large characteristic because he's painting um so if you look a step back and this is very much my own perception of things so uh, I'm not sure I corrected it is but you, I, I would say in history there's been two overarching art movements one being symbolic and one being naturalistic yeah and the symbolic I mean you go back to the earliest cave paintings up into really Caravaggio uh, again you get medieval art Byzantine art Eastern art um, Japanese are really like the depiction of things are symbolic of their true nature or within the element of religion things like that and then with the bursting in the scene of humanism and uh, a lot of the techniques, the paintings, uh, the painting materials themselves got better. Caravaggio is able to bring in this naturalism, this understanding of the beauty of the human figure and this depiction of human figures incredibly realistically. 
And I think the power of a Caravaggio is kind of lost on us today in some ways because we can't walk into a church like we were in the 1500s and be completely bowled away by it. Because if you were walking in the church, you've never seen a body depicted like that on a wall. It was unbelievable experience. Whereas we constantly are walking by advertisement and photos and movies. So we're kind of used to it. Not to say that Caravaggio isn't a, you know, doesn't knock you over when you see it, but that I think actually there's almost like a third movement coming in again right now where we're going back to the, the symbolic. So the symbolic representation of things is actually more, uh, it's going to be more effective today. I don't know if effective is the right word, but that if we look at Wacom Church and there's kind of this gothic depiction of things and it's very symbol oriented, that's almost more shocking than seeing a really realistic depiction of things. So I'm interested in that way of, of where does kind of modern art, which really focuses on the symbol of things, play into the naturalistic tradition and where that ends, takes us. I, I have no idea, but it's very fascinating. So I'm glad you brought up Caravaggio. There's another work on your website, uh, it's, and it's um, a, it was commissioned for a home. And if I read the imagery correctly, uh, first of all, it's called Night Shroud. And if I read it correctly, it's on three walls, right? Well, it is primarily the oil painting on one, but again, we, we painted the other walls to match. Okay. It is, you could right. say so, it's the whole room on okay. it in some I ways. I couldn't yeah. quite tell if it was a continuation of the right. painting or whether it was, yeah. Yeah, that was the idea. So. Okay, <laughs> but, but, the, but the, the walls, the side walls are painted right, in the, some continuum or, or some unity exactly. unified uh, image, uh, color scheme, right, right with, with the painting. So tell us a little bit about that project. How'd that come about and... And uh, how'd you get your head around the fact that you were painting the wall of, uh, of a dining room? Right. And, and also, I'm so intrigued that it, it, it's so dark. Um, right. For, and, and that seems to me so different for a, a domestic dining room. Right. It was so, so like, someone contacted me about the project, um, and I met with these folks. They um, lived in Potomac, Maryland. They were moving to a beautiful home, and, and they, they were fantastic to work with throughout the process. Because they placed an ideal on, on they placed value on this. They wanted artwork in their home, and they had a loose idea of what it might look like. Mm-hmm. But they really left a lot to me, and I, I love working with patrons that I can really work with. So I don't. I hate coming in and just being the artist saying, "This is what I'm going to do." I want to know what you're interested in, and then we work together. And so I see myself again, like more of a, a carpenter in that way. Like I will paint, you know, what we're interested in and, and what we can get to. Um, but I think I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think they, they said they, they really liked uh, frescoes. Um, they were also they uh, were uh, Irish lineage, and they were interested in Irish uh, scenes and folktales and, and primarily landscapes. Hmm. And so two very kind of disparate worlds in some ways. And, and then we were looking at the color scheme of their house. A lot of grays, very elegant. It was a very modern space. Um, and so I started doing some sketches and, again, working very abstractly about what shapes would fit in. And from that, we evolved into this landscape. And we built kind of a narrative around it, too, actually. It was interesting. We, we, I, I was really interested in the, in the, uh, the story, the, the history and myth uh, of St. Bridget of Ireland. And, and there's also a myth about these uh, children, these kind of deities that become swans. And there's a lot of mythological components that are built into this landscape. And it was interesting, a lot of them got taken out later on because of just the space, but that the landscape was hopefully reminiscing and pulling those stories in just by being a landscape. So there's, no, uh, there's not really too many figures per se. There's only really one. Um, 
And so that was a really fascinating. So it was kind of evoking this kind of Irish mysticism. But one thing they were really interested in and, and were really uh, vocal about, the, one of the few opinions they really had strongly was they wanted it to be, they didn't want it to like scream in your face. Like you don't, I didn't want it to, they didn't want it and I didn't want it to be, you know, you walk into an Italian restaurant sometimes and they'll have those like frescoes of like oh, you're on yeah. a balcony. So it's oh, like sure, yeah, yeah. just kind of loud. They wanted it to be kind of subtle. Yeah. Which is a challenge when you're doing a 14-foot oil painting. How can you settle 14-foot yeah. oil painting? And so I picked a lot of inspiration from uh, a lot of the American tonalist painters from the 20th and, and, and 19th century, particularly Whistler, because I think he does a beautiful job. I was just at, there's a fantastic show at the, the Freer Sackler Gallery in Washington, D.C. of his watercolors. And even if that show goes down, there's still there's a huge collection of his work there. It's one of the things, first things I went is I went there. So I think the tonalist American painters were phenomenal with working within the context of a space. They're very decorational. So Whistler would actually work with the whole room. You see the peacock room, things like that. And why that 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 word uh, tonalist? So they were really tr- interested, and in, and in, uh, I'm no expert in history, so I may be getting some things wrong. But my my understanding of it is that they were interested in working within kind of a key. So in the same way, they have a musical key that's limited. Um, but there's different relationship between the colors in there. They would work in um, kind of keys in that way. Um, so some of the, if you look at a Whistler, there will be kind of a very tight limitation on the the map. different colors, different values being the different light, lights and darks, but really focusing on the relationship between them. So you look at a, a Whistler and they're very uh, subtle in that way, but there's a lot that's being communicated. There's a very musical element to their work. Uh, is kind of a, there's, the romanticism in a way too about these scenes and what they can depict and so for this space I thought that was a perfect uh, inspiration to draw from because uh, the, the subtleness of it the hues the decorative nature of it um, really was conducive for that space and so I started taking inspiration from Whistler and a lot of these guys and, and the process was basically doing a bunch of sketches um, kind of progressing in style starting with a, a few inches and working with them constantly on what do you like about this you don't throughout the whole process, um, which was really enjoyable for, for myself and, and the patrons, and eventually doing a, uh, a five-foot painting that I then worked from. So, And I think they, they took the five-foot painting and they framed it, so they have that too. Um, and so then when I'm working on the, the wall, basically I try to most choreograph my moves throughout these sketches, that when I'm working on the wall, I can do it without having to go back and fix things. So I, by the time I got to the wall, I had a pretty clear idea of what I was going to do. And there's always this idea of, like Rothko in your example, like there's there's a lot of uh, unknowns that could happen, variables, so you have to trust those. But I saw this piece being decorative, almost like a, a dance of, you know, playing all these different colors together. And, and again, we it was also a nocturne, so there's the moon and there's kind of this immersive light right, right. and kind of this softness to it that was uh, a lot of fun to paint. So it's a relatively modern house, and, and the wall material was, was drywall, or was there a layer of plaster on top of it? It was drywall, which is really interesting. So I yeah. put down uh, a gesso, which uh, quite thickly on the wall, so that was what I was painting directly on. Mm-hmm. Which is what, please? So it's it's kind of like a, like a almost like a glue. So a canvas, you have like a cotton or linen canvas typically, and then you put down a gesso and different primers you can put down, and that's what you paint on. Okay. So I put that down on the wall, kind of... You know, slap it on there. Um, so if they didn't move, they could actually cut out that piece of drywall and move it, and it should be archival and things like that. Um, so that, and then also with the the Holy Family Commission, that's what I was able to do. And it was really special to work on location. Mm-hmm. 
to work um, one with Holy Family in a school. So I would incorporate students. I would talk to them throughout the process. And actually working in a chapel was incredibly uh, beautiful experience. Um, the tabernacle was there. It was very powerful. And then working within a home, you know, the family's there, and you're working um, for months on this piece. It was very special to kind of get the, you know, vibe from the home, if you will. I'm, I'm curious about the name Night Shroud. Yeah, I, I so is is it is the um, inference that the the night is a shroud or there's a shroud on the night? I, I couldn't get my head quite around that. Yeah, I wish I wish I had a better answer. But my my approach to naming is really loose. I, I again, I think I, I have a, a idea I'm trying to get to my paintings, and afterwards I'll slap a name that kind of gets close. Yeah. So I think with this painting, it was uh, I mean it was a night scene, so you get the night, but also just the idea of a, a shroud, kind of. There's this haze on the whole scene, and this kind of uh, kind of somewhat like eerie kind of invitingness. I don't know if those two words go together. Uh, again, I'm a painter, so I'm not a words guy. So I try to approximate with words, but I felt like that it wasn't just those two words separately. The combination of the two words communicated something I was trying to get at in that painting. Shroud usually implies um, some kind of reverential covering. Right. Either you, we, we you know put a shroud on. On a corpse of a beloved one who's passed, or right. the shroud is is something is like a veil, right? Mm-hmm. And behind it, there's something. So it conveys some sense of mystery, right? Right. And I think that you could almost I, I see almost like the night and, and the way you have dew and fog is, is kind of a shroud over the earth, and the yeah, sun comes yeah. up. That that I think I always come back to even in my most secular works, and I think every artist in a uh, in some capacity does this idea of the sacred. You can't get away from all of these symbols because they just do return very naturally into your own work. So even from working yeah. on a landscape, yeah. it manifests itself in that way. Um, yeah. I think the name kind of kind of captured that a little bit. Yeah. Well, this is wonderful, and you've you've got your hand and your heart and your mind and your voice in a number of projects. Uh, so you're you're associated with um, Catholic University of America. You've got a hand in um, your. Um, how do you call it? Uh, you're at the National Gallery of Art. You have a copy of the National Gallery of Art. Yeah. It's a wonderful experience. A copy of yeah, yeah. yeah. So, which is great. So we could actually run into you sometime. Right, over yeah. There, painting, a copy of one of the great masters. Right. And you're recently at the, the Napa Institute, which is really wonderful. So you, you've got a voice and, uh, and a vision. Um, you're kind of like a contemporary Van Gogh. You're <laughs> making your way <laughs> the, into the world. and. That's wonderful. What, just uh, as we wrap it up here, uh, briefly, what are what, what's a project you're working on, or or a handful of projects? Right. Well, one thing I, I'm I've been really privileged to be part of is something called the Carl Schmidt Foundation. Oh yes. So Carl Schmidt was a, a 20th century American painter. I just have to distinguish; he's not the political theorist; he's a painter, separate right, guy. Right, yeah. Um, and a phenomenal, phenomenal painter thinker, just person I encountered in high school. Um, someone gave me a book on him and it completely rocked my world. And, uh, really I found, uh, kind of a, a colleague in a way that was, he was speaking about something that I was really passionate about. And I thought about it and had a chance to really speak to a lot of people about. Um, and he lived, he was born in 1889, died in 1989, never met him, but I felt kind of this kinship and I found out that his son lived in DC. His son was about nine years old. I went and met with him. And we started meeting regularly. I learned a little more and more about their father. father and and uh, about a year ago, the foundation had a need for someone to help uh, with uh, uh, the foundation that was started to kind of share his work with the wider public and also manage uh, a beautiful uh, property he left behind with a studio up there. So I 
moved into the studio and helped get things started. We ran. Um, and where is this? It's up in Wilton, Connecticut. Okay. So it's in about an hour north of Manhattan okay. on the MTA North Line. Um, it's a beautiful space that was occupied. This incredible painter. So I've been privileged to help run events, just get the word out about his work. I was working in his studio for about a year, and it was just an incredibly special. Ex- so moving forward, I have a lot of exciting things to do with the Crossroad Foundation and sharing this artist that's had such a huge effect on myself. So there's carlschmidt.org, um, Carl Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T-T.org. You can see some of the things we're doing there, hopefully putting out a lot of new events that will be uploaded soon onto the website. Um, you mentioned I work with Catholic U, trying to help them um, in the new stages of their Benjamin T. Rome School of Art, Music, and Drama mm. approach, some really interesting programs. Um, and a lot of my interest recently has been focused um, going back to the initial beginning of the conversation of creating a meaningful artwork for meaningful spaces and what it looks like for me. And so I'm really interested in what I see kind of putting beauty in the front lines. So thinking about where beauty is going to have the largest impact. So this morning I was on, uh, I just was uh, calling with, with a migrant center near the border. And I've been uh, speaking with prisons across the U.S. about getting artwork, particularly sacred artwork, into prison chapels. Mm. And been doing a lot of research on that. So in the early stages of trying to make an impact to people that need it the most, I'm really uh, passionate about the idea of arts patronage. Of course, an artist is going to be interested in patronage, but how that can translate. I think the, the model today is kind of you have a rich guy and he, he uh, commissions a painting and it sits in his apartment in Manhattan and no one sees it. The old model was the uh, wealthy would commission a piece of artwork and it would sit in the cathedral and the peasants would see it. Everyone would see it. It was very communal. And so I'm thinking about ways that patronage can exist to create artwork for the people I need the most. So again, prisons, uh, schools, underfunded communities. So I'm trying to speak with people that are passionate about art and help them support projects that are going to make a difference. So hopefully uh, getting more information about that soon. But that's been an exciting, incredibly exciting thing for me to do. That's that's wonderful. If uh, someone wanted to learn more about the art that you're creating and wanted to visit your website. What's the name of the website? So the website um, is, is DESA, D-E-S-A dash art.com. So DESA dash or hyphen art.com. And you'll see some of my work. I need to update it, but there's there's some work on there. And, and, and please do get in touch either through the website or my, my, uh, feel free to use my personal email as well. It's just Andrew J D-E-S-A, Andrew J DESA at gmail.com. Um, just if you have an interest in art, if you're an educator interested in speaking about art, I, I, I love coming and speaking. I've had a privilege to speak at a lot of schools to students. Um, and of course, uh, primarily I've been working on commissions, so that idea of partnering with someone to make something uh, beautiful is really exciting to me. Um, working with a few people on home chapels has been really exciting because the way I see it, I think uh, a lot of people might agree that we believe prayer is one of the most if not the most important thing you can do. Mm-hmm. So as an artist, the second most important thing I can do is help someone pray. So creating spaces in people's homes or small devotional things that can help someone pray mm-hmm. is a, a large mission statement of mine. So if you have ideas about a piece, you're interested in that for a, either a school or ch- uh, your, your church or your own home, feel free to reach out. I love talking to people about you know whatever project they might be interested in. So yeah. website or email is always great. Andrew, you're doing glorious work. Thank uh, you. Keep it up, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to keeping in touch. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sources. 
We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Sources. <laughs>